You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Man, I hope Fitz saved some takes. You just heard him hanging out with Janae and Golik Jr. for a bit, helping out on that show, but he's back because we got Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80, 90 minutes tonight, taking you into game four of Lakers Nuggets at 8.30 Eastern. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Guests join us on the Shell Penzo Performance Line. We're going to get to the breaking news on the Pac-12 a little later in the show and, of course, get you ready for that game four in the NBA and a slate of WNBA playoff games. But first, it's Thursday, which means Thursday night football, which means I'm contractually obligated to remind you to set your fantasy lineups just in case you forget. Um, and Fitz, let's talk about this. It's so early. Wait, 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 wait. You just reminded me to reset my fantasy. Like, I haven't done that yet today, <laughs> so you're just going to have to go. You've all- been very busy. <laughs> you, you've been doing all the shows. Um, it, yeah, it's important. Sometimes on Thursdays, we all forget. We wait till the weekend. But we've got Dolphins at Jacksonville. Uh, Jacksonville, a team that we thought was supposed to be tanking and, and yet uh, really put up a fight in both weeks, and they're 1-1. One and one. And an 0-2 Dolphins team that very clearly is getting ready for the eventual takeover of Tua. What are the storylines you can find in this sort of bottom-dwelling matchup tonight? Well, you know, I don't think you're wrong that it's a bottom-dwelling matchup and parts of it will be painful. I think a couple of things that stand out, though, is number one, we do expect the Dolphins to be better defensively. They spent a lot of money there, so that money should at some point start to pay off. But I think the biggest story in this game really has been Jay Gruden. I mean, we forget that Jay Gruden, because he was such a failure of a head coach in the eyes of some with the Washington football team, we forget that he was a very renowned offensive coordinator, and he's showing some of that. His strength as an offensive coordinator is he's very good, as simple as this sounds, at identifying what his quarterback is comfortable with and making sure he's implementing that. That's exactly Exactly what I think he's doing with Gardner Minshew. That's why I think they've played better to, than expected. And that's why, frankly, I believe a lot in what Jay Gruden is doing with this offense for the Jags. So I'm excited to see what they look like against some talent that was paid a lot of money because they're expected to be good on defense. Yeah, and I think just watching Gardner Minshew continue to develop is worth watching here. Um, he's a guy that maybe felt like a sort of placeholder for when this team is ready to open up and play in a winning window. The way they handled their offseason, the players they were willing to get rid of made it very clear that they are not looking to win a Super Bowl this year. But he's coming out and putting up statistically fantastic performances and making you say, okay, all right. You know, this is a guy that we really could build something around. Um, Dolphin secondary definitely going to be tested tonight uh, by Minshew. So that's a matchup to keep an eye on. Uh, Thursday night football tonight, like I said, set your lineups. Uh, Meanwhile, while we're on the NFL, of course, we'll do a lot more NFL tomorrow. We'll get into our six-pack and make our picks. But we played a game last week that I wanted to do tonight called Most Likely To. And we pick a couple teams or players from this week that we think are most likely to do something or need something in the case of the first one. And and I want to get to this because I think I know what your answer is going to be. But I don't know. There's two guys that are very much up for this prize for me. Uh, who's your NFL player most likely to need a win this weekend? Well, that's a really good conversation because there's a couple of different quarterbacks, and we always focus on quarterbacks that need a little love. But to me, this is all about Carson Wentz. And I was just talking about how so Jake— I'm going to say him or yeah. Cousins. Well, yeah. that's a really good question because, obviously, Kirk has been a massive disappointment. But I'll go back to what I was just saying about Jay Gruden. Like, he's found a way to make Gardner Minshew look comfortable. For some reason, there isn't that same level of comfort for Carson Wentz. And i got to look at Doug Peterson and say, hey— Find those 15, 20 plays that are going to put him in a situation where he feels good out of the gates. That hasn't happened yet. 
I have to play the sound from Greeny from this morning, and I think we've got it because I think he nailed any kind of uh, criticism of the offensive line you want to have. Uh, it's not on them. It's on Wentz. No one has thrown more interceptions. No one has been sacked more times, and no one has made more off-target throws. Since his team was up 17-0 on Washington, the Eagles have scored touchdowns on two of 21 drives. Now, I know what you're thinking. It's the banged-up offensive line. Guess what? You're wrong. Our analytics actually have the Eagles fifth in the league in pass protection. The problem has actually been the internal clock and decision-making. Week one, Wentz took eight sacks and threw the ball away zero times. Of his 20 off-target throws this year, 15 have come from a clean pocket. This cannot be described as other people's fault. The truth is this. In 2017, Wentz was an MVP frontrunner before he got hurt. On a team so good it won the Super Bowl without him, beating Tom Brady in a game in which Brady threw for 500 yards and his team didn't punt. The following year, Wentz was 5-6 and six when he got hurt again. Nick Foles finished 4-1, and one, beat the number one defense in the league in the playoffs. Meanwhile, the numbers say that since then, Wentz has been an average quarterback. Since that first injury, the Eagles are 14-15 and 15 in his starts. They scored 23 points a game, which is exactly the league average. And his QBR is 59.9, exactly the same as Jameis Winston's. Right now, his team is winless. It drafted a quarterback in the second round, and it got booed off the field Sunday in a game with no fans. They get the Bengals this week in what suddenly feels a little bit like a crossroads. And that's, at the end, that part about Jalen Hurts and that second-round drafted quarterback. That's why he needs it more than uh, Kirk Cousins. Yeah, it's a really good point because Philadelphia fans are not going to be patient, so you're absolutely right about that. All right, quickies, most likely to get their first win this week. What team? Uh, first win, I'm going to go with those Eagles. They're going to beat the Bengals as much okay. as I like Joe Burrow. Okay. And most likely to take their first loss. You got one of those? Yeah, I'm going to go with the Raiders. There's too oh. many injuries playing at New England. I just can't trust it. Ugh. I put you on the spot, put you to work right when you got here, and you passed with flying colors. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, it's ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Spain and Fitz, short show tonight, taking you into Game 4 of Lakers Nuggets at 8.30 Eastern. Don't forget to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. All sorts of pre-party and after-party digital-only content you can only get there. Uh, this is going to be a fun conversation. We got a little uh, all-in-the-family going on here as the Grizzlies' Jaron Jackson Jr. and Terry Jackson, his mom, who is executive director of the WNBA PA, are going to join us and talk about Hooper's vote. Uh, I know you both are really passionate about this, and Jaron, I remember following you on social draft night when you wore a suit jacket that said, rot the vote on the inside. So from the first moment you were a pro, you know it was important to use your voice for this. What made you so passionate, Jaron, about the importance importance of uh, election and voting um it was definitely family driven it's a value that we know that we stand for and my mom has definitely instilled that in me over time and it's something i know from history that as especially people who look like me we've died for that uh right to vote and i think it was important to express that to people who look like me to people who look out to me especially young kids and you know definitely made the impact i wanted and looking back it was definitely the right move because of how much we're talking about it now, I'll always say that, you know, I've been talking about this. So it's yeah. now a staple in everybody else's conversation. Terry, you're one of many WNBA representatives. There are a ton of uh, current and former NBA legends and stars, coaches, media personalities, super fans, all linking up with Rock the Vote for this Hooper's Vote initiative. Can you tell us a little bit more about hoopersvote.org and what people can find there? 
Sure. So let me let me go back a little bit further, uh, Derek, because as the Players Association, we connected with Rock the Vote a few years ago. We connected with them back in 2018. So this partnership with us, with our members, has been strong for, for a few years now um, through midterm elections and the major elections. Um, and Hooper's Vote, you know, it was an initiative that, that quite honestly was a no-brainer for us. You know, they um, it, it's about um, bringing the basketball culture together with the civic duty of, of voting, energizing young voters. And, and, and I think WNBA players are the perfect folks to be energizing the demographic that we're, we're hoping to get to the polls and, and, and be new voters, be excited, energized, and informed new voters. So when they came to us and they said, hey, we want to push stuff out on social media, we want to wrap it around education, we want it to be timely during National Voter Registration Week, well, again, it was a no-brainer for us. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, you get to a certain age and you, you, you look back and you maybe think if you didn't start voting right at the age you could or if you skipped one ever, you know, what was I thinking at the time and why didn't it did, didn't it feel like a priority? And I wonder, Jaron, you know, as a young as a young guy who probably has a lot of friends who are trying to figure out, you know, if they're not super passionate about either of the presidential candidates or if they're not familiar with the lower level elections going on in their state, ah, maybe I won't go, especially with coronavirus. What do you tell your friends who say, you know, maybe my voice isn't heard or this isn't an election for me? Well, it's always an election for you. It may be intimidating to see large amount of numbers in terms of voting. You see so many people voting, you wonder if your vote matters. But the point is, like, all those people went to the polls, and in this case, people mailed in, they got informed. And it's it's not about doing an extensive amount of, you know, reading or people look at it for my demographic as, like, almost homework. It, it should be a fun thing because, like, this is what we're – trying to we're trying to elect people to make decisions that will in turn affect you later and you know if you make it fun you get informed you just take a day to go out there and vote you've done so much and you don't even realize it because it's a small thing it's a small thing but it goes such a long way yeah and to your point it's sort of fascinating for people to be reminded that they feel like they're just this one little number but there were so many uh states that were decided in the previous presidential election by a, a really small number of people and then yes. you look at if, yes. if you look at any sort yes, of graphic um if you look at the graphic of people who voted for trump is is a certain size and then bigger than that in terms of general election people who voted for hillary and then like 25 times either size of those little bubbles is people who didn't even vote, eligible voters who didn't do anything, who sat by and let everyone else make the decision for them. Terry, you know, to me, it feels like sometimes people think about the election as just a choice between two men, as, as is the case this year for the presidential election. But so much more is at stake. Oh, you know, there's so many more issues that might be personal to people that they don't realize are influenced by the person who's in charge deciding who else is in that administration or even yes. in Senate, Senate races and other things like that. Yeah. You know, we we've talked about this as a family. You know, we, we've talked about what's important to us. Right. Particularly coming to Memphis. We're in a new city. And so it's important for us to see who's running and see what what, you know, referendum, what what's on the ballot. Um, what's important to us as a family is, is education. There's, there's lots of things that are out there. And, and as Jaron Jr. said, you know, who's, who are the people that are going to represent us? Who, are, who is on the ballot from the top of the ballot all the way down to, to the local races? Um, you know, who's, who are we 
voting for for judge, uh, for prosecutor, um, in addition to who we're voting for for president, we've got to get to know who these people are. And and like Jaron Jr. said, they're they're going to represent us. So let's know who they are. Let's know as much as, as we can about them and how they align with our values um, and recognize that this is very important. And, and Sarah, you know, you were talking about folks who who didn't vote. Maybe they sat out or or maybe something happened with, you know, vote, their voter registration. So we're yeah. encouraging people through through this initiative you know, register to vote. And if you said, I'm, I'm registered already, I want you to check your registration. Confirm that you that you were there so that when when you go to show up and you don't wait till November 3rd, hopefully, you know, November 3rd is the last day to vote. It's not the first opportunity to vote. But when you go to, to request your ballot or when you go to show up at the at your polling place, that your number, that your name is down there and, and you can cast your ballot. So, um there's there's so much about this initiative that that's really informative for for young people in this demographic. And you know what? For folks that are as as old as me and and <laughs> Jaron Jr.'s dad, you know, um, you know, there are things that we are learning too um, about this. And and it's and it's been a really really good a good journey. Terry Jackson, executive director of the WNBA Players Association and the Grizzlies, Jaron Jackson Jr. with us here on Spain and Fit, Sarah Spain on ESPN Radio. Yeah, and just looking at, it's not tricky, it's not homework like you said, Jaron, but you do have to make sure you read the you know directions if you're going to vote by mail and make sure the ballot goes in the secrecy envelope and those go in the outer declaration envelope. Just reading the instructions to make sure that there's no chance that your vote doesn't get counted. Jaron, you know, the, the um, initiatives within the bubble and from the NBA and WNBA throughout this uh, return of the season have been incredibly inspiring. What has it meant to you to be a part of a league that's on the forefront of, of wanting to, to be about more than just basketball? It's definitely a good feeling, and I, even that is an understatement. But I feel like we've contributed to that so much as players. We've been able to come together, and although certain circumstances have made us come together that aren't necessarily 100% positive, we've been able to make something positive out of it, um, whether that was putting something on our jerseys, kneeling, any sort of thing. And that's not just voting, but any sort of thing kind of goes in that direction. So I'm just glad that the league backed us up on that. Like, like we knew they would, there was no doubt about it. And at the end of the day, the women were the people who led it in the first place, which they usually do. They're usually the first people in, in any situation I've kind of seen, they've been the first people to stand up for something without any hesitation. And usually we follow their lead, which I think should get definitely a lot more credit because we're honestly just following what they're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, we all did it simultaneously together. We all did it for many great reasons and the league backed us. And at the end of the day, we all looked as one. So that was the goal and we got it done. Yeah, I love that you say that because it's so true. It's really remarkable the amount of uh, impact the WNBA has been able to have as a league and as individual players. The uh, the level of education and insight that those women have while also being the the greatest at what they do in the world is 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 continually uh, impresses me. But you as well, I saw there was a great beyond the court to the polls video with you and Coach Jenkins, uh, you know, about voter education and the history of voting. And I think you said it before, when people realize how hard fought the, the opportunity and the right to vote was, perhaps they take it a bit more seriously that it's uh, something that they have a chance to do. Hoopersvote.org is where you go. You can find out uh, if you're registered or register. You can sign up for election reminders. You can figure out the uh, voting policies in your state. Somewhere like Wisconsin, you need a witness. So you need to find out things like that. Um, 
um, for certain uh, kinds of voting via via mail or uh, or even in person, especially now with coronavirus. So great place to get all sorts of information. And it all kicked off today with Hooper's Register to Vote Day. So you probably saw all over your social media, all sorts of uh, graphics of the faces of people involved. You two are two of the big names doing it. And uh, your voices are so powerful and important. So thanks for giving me some time and, and keep getting out there spreading the word. Sarah, it's been great. Thank you. We're talking to Master Tesfatsian, Bleacher Report senior writer, host of Untold Stories on Bleacher Report. Uh, let's get into Chiefs-Ravens. This is an incredible matchup, and I mm. saw a statistic today that absolutely blew my mind uh, on GetUp. Ever since they traded for Marcus Peters, so 12 games, mm. the Ravens have 23 takeaways and have allowed 16 touchdowns. They have more takeaways than touchdowns allowed. <laughs> How do you see this one going down, especially with that defense they've got? Yeah, I think the de- that defense is going to be the difference maker. And it, uh, kudos to the Baltimore Ravens for making a brilliant trade with the Rams uh, to get Marcus Peters really at this point for a bargain, to get a, a shutdown, lockdown corner of his caliber and getting him to be as productive as he has been. And not only that, but they, they reward him well before his contract needs to be rewarded. It just shows you know how much they value him and cherish him. And I, I think that defense is, is going to be the difference maker here because on the flip side of that, obviously we both know about each of these offenses, but for the Chiefs defense, I mean, they're allowing like almost five yards of carry on the ground. And I think they've allowed also 115 first downs, which is among the most in the league. So I mean, you look at a Baltimore offense that, hey, if there's one thing they know how to do, they, they can move the football and you give, you're giving Baltimore the option of, of running with all the options and weapons they have in the backfield and obviously with Lamar Jackson. It could be a long night for the Chiefs' defense. So I, I'm, I'm taking I'm taking the Ravens here on this one. I mean, obviously, you can't bet against Patrick Mahomes. You can't bet against that offense. But Baltimore is playing some really good football right now. Master, did the Chargers, in your mind, uh, sort of reveal anything about the Chiefs that the rest of the league can take advantage of with their surprising effort last week? Uh, I mean, they revealed it. They probably need a new team doctor. Uh, we'll start with that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but... It, yeah, I think they. I think they did. I mean, you, you got a rookie quarterback that, that, to me, in my opinion, um, I, I wasn't really expecting too much of Justin Herbert this year. I, I felt like there was a lot of learning curves he had to go through. Uh, and me being a, a Pac-12 alum and a Pac-12 fan, uh, you know, I, I genuinely felt like this year was going to be a transition year for him whenever he was able to take the field. But the way he was able to move the football, I mean, he was making some great throws. Don't get me wrong, but. It, there is there is reason to be concerned about the Chiefs' defense it, when you're allowing a rookie quarterback like this who wasn't expecting to start at all uh, prior prior to the game and so Tyrod's uh, had to go rush to the hospital and he comes in and just lights y'all up like you you can't help but raise the flag you you can't help but but go in the film in the next day and wonder you know what the hell happened and and I think the the biggest concern on in terms of what I see is just that that run defense needs to improve because if you can't fit the run. In the NFL, you're just gonna you're gonna be in for some long, long days on Sunday. Master Tesfatsi and Oblige Report with us here on Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. You just said, "What the hell happened?" I'm sure the Falcons were thinking that against the Cowboys last week, and the Cowboys <laughs> trying to get their groove on, trying to feel a little better about themselves, and they go right up to Seattle. You giving them a shot here? Uh, look, if there's, I know how much. This is being faulted on uh, the Falcons in terms of their epic collapse. And to privy this, I am from Dallas. You know what I'm saying? I'm always going to rep for the city. Okay. I like admitting um, your bias so, when you, you come know, in. That's good. Yeah. This means nothing. Thank you for letting you know, me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I got to preface everything I say with that. 
But I think the the one thing that hasn't been spoken about enough in that game is how impressive Dak Prescott was in the face of adversity, in the face of how they dropped twenty down twenty to nothing in the first quarter, uh, giving up I think it was four turnovers and four takeaways. Uh, excuse me, in that first quarter, and still being able to keep this thing together. And you, I mean, you can ask that whole team. You can ask Ezekiel Elliott, who a lot of people give credit to in terms of who runs that offense. And Ezekiel Elliott will tell you, no, it's Dak that runs this offense. And I think it was just another example how Dak is, 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 is should be considered and continuously should be named as, as one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And so I think from that standpoint, uh, the Cowboys do have a shot. And, and if the, I, I expect it to be another shootout situation. Um, I think if there's anything we learned from the Seahawks-Patriots game is that, uh, you know, the Seahawks, they, they struggled to, to, to produce some sort of pass rush. And the absence of Bruce Irvin, I think, was, was massive. Uh, because at, at that was at that point, like who else do you have available really that can can bring pressure on their own? And so I, I think they do have a shot because Atlanta, they don't have the same pass rushes that Atlanta has, and I think that's going to be the biggest factor in terms of what was disrupting uh, Dallas's offense. But you know, I picked as much as I I, I, I love the Cowboys and I love Dallas. Uh, I had the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. I had Russell winning MVP. So. They proved me right, right so far, and, and and I think Russell's on a mission right now. That I think I think they'll be able to squeeze by with a uh, a one score win here. You guys Seattle. can follow him on Twitter at Master Tests. You can obviously check out Untold Stories out on Bleacher Report. Look, I, I love admitting bias. Like, for example, all I heard when you talked about the Chiefs is that my beloved Raiders are going to be able to run all over them. Thanks for the hanging out with us, <laughs> Master. Like, it's, you know, I'm twisting this. However, I need. We appreciate your time, man. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. No doubt. Check out Untold Stories Season 2. It's out. New episode coming out on Wednesday, all right? We got some breaking news going on in the college football landscape as now it looks like the Pac-12 is going to return to action. So instead of getting four of the Power 5 conferences, we will get all five of the Power 5 conferences. They have start. They are going to start playing games in early November. So at this point, the Pac-12 will be the last to get rolling, but they will at least get rolling, and we'll see if they can cram in enough games to get themselves considered for the college football playoffs should they get there. Also of note, it looks like they're going to this year allow everybody, at least the, the recommendation from the Oversight Committee has been that every team that plays this year can be eligible for a bowl game, and they'll start bowl games as early as December 1st. So we have this weird world where the Pac-12 might be playing regular season games while two teams nobody really cares about from a conference that's already gotten done is going to be playing terrible bowl games. This, this sounds like a disaster of football. Right. I mean, you don't have to hit that 500 record and then graduate all your players to get in a bowl game, I guess is what they're telling you. I'm curious, as always, if they could be transparent about why they changed their mind. Is it rapid turnaround tests? Is it that someone allowed them the money to be able to afford those tests? Was that really what was holding them back before? Um, I've got a podcast coming out with a guy who was a pandemic expert for the White House and uh, created the, you know, was the architect of a plan for HIV, malaria, all these diseases. And his estimation is that our death rate in the U.S. will double by the end of the year because of the flu season, cold weather, people going inside, people getting mask fatigue. Like, this is not getting any better. Numbers are going up around us. I'm just not certain, other than the pressure of seeing other people play and other conferences move forward, what is inspiring this decision-making? And that makes me very sad and concerned for the people playing. You're a thousand percent right. And I will take my college football fan hat off. Uh, and, and admittedly, like I think it's important to admit to the world, like I, I make a lot of my career in the, the college football space. So from a career standpoint, of course, I look oh, at it and say... great news for a lot of people. This yeah. Is, yeah, I mean, this is I, for my friends that, that make a living in it, awesome. 
From the other side of it, though, realistically, the Pac-12 is putting their kids out there with very little chance they'll play enough games to be considered for the playoff, even if they have a great team, which most of us don't expect they will. And then you combine the wildfires and everything that they've been dealing with there on top of, in, in California particularly, on top of the COVID issue, and it really does feel like they're they're rolling the kids out there to put the kids at risk to make a little money. And that's, I mean, I, I know that sounds cynical, but it just, that's, in my heart of hearts, like that part of me looks at it and says, man, I hate for the kids that may not feel safe playing that they now yeah. feel pressured to play. Well, and also I'm not even sure it's going to work out because uh, today the county of Boulder, Colorado issued a prohibition on guide, on, on gatherings uh, for students between 18 and 22. Uh, that means the buffs can't practice until that's done. So they would have four weeks to prepare for the opener. Right now, California has guidelines for college sports that prevent teams from practices with larger than 12 people. That's not practical for football. So a source tells ESPN they think that that's going to go away and be fine. But then the California Department of Public Health said to ESPN they don't have any changes to the guidelines planned. So this is all, I think, resting on a lot of things and without understanding how much can change between now and then as well. Because if things get worse, probably those guidelines get even stricter. Be sure to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can get it on the ESPN app, Apple iTunes, Apple Podcasts, all the places you get your podcast. And we have cool pre-party and after-party content you can only get if you subscribe and listen to the podcast. So make sure you do it. We're taking you into Game 4, Lakers Nuggets, 8.30 Eastern tonight. Don't forget, Spain and Fitz is presented by Progressive Insurance. Progressive's home quote explorer is changing the way you buy home insurance. Now you can go online, get a custom quote, and save both time and money. Learn more at Progressive.com. So, Fitz, uh, yesterday I was running around all day, and I remember seeing some reports about Chicago preparing in advance for the Breonna Taylor verdict. And, of course, Louisville had declared a state of emergency at least a day in advance, anticipating potential protests, which was probably not a great sign for the news that was to come. And uh, many disappointed, enraged, frustrated um feeling as though the protections and liberties and rights uh, laid out in our Constitution and in all of the songs and pledges and things that we attribute to the greatness of America don't actually apply to all. And in this particular case, a woman shot while sleeping, uh, then not given any aid for the 20 minutes while she lay dying, uh, stood as a perfect example of, of rights not being afforded to all. And not surprisingly, the WNBA players released a joint statement tonight before the games got underway. They've been playing this season in Breonna Taylor's memory, but also a lot of NBA players. And Malika Andrews, who's just 25 and has been just unbelievably excellent on these topics and everything else from the bubble, last night uh, broke down as she was trying to talk about the impact this might have on all of the players who've been fighting for social justice in the bubble. I have prided myself in being able to be objective and cover these sorts of issues. But when it is so clear that the system of objectivity in journalism is so whitewashed and doesn't account for the fact that when I am walking up the hill, my wonderful producer Melinda reminds me that Breonna Taylor was 26 and I am 25 and that could have been me. It is very hard to continue to go to work and that's what these players were feeling. Now, players on both sides that they said that they didn't contemplate not actually playing in this game. They always knew that was something that they were going to do, but that doesn't mean that they were not disappointed in what happened today in Louisville. This is a lot to expect someone that young to be that eloquent on it in that moment and and she was, but she speaks for so many in saying 
how much more do we cry and scream and yell and say this could be me before people actually make a change? Well, and I've uh, I watched it live in the moment, and it was moving to see and uh, you know moving to see her be so open, and frankly to see SVP be so supportive in that moment. But I think the the thing that really hit me is here's somebody with a microphone and with a voice and with a passion that gets to use that microphone voice and passion at some level to at least continue to feel that I feel for players that were at times hesitant for whether or not they wanted to go to the bubble because they wanted to be involved in their community, seeing something like this happen and realize that, hey, I may have made a mistake that keeps me, or not mistake, but I made a decision that could keep me from having the same level of activism that I really want to have in this moment. And that's heartbreaking to me for the people that are in the bubble that that may have wondered about whether or not that was the right choice to make. This has got to be incredibly difficult for everybody to figure out how to process emotionally and then still go out and do their jobs. Yeah, and specifically to something that she said that I I think is important is the whitewashing of journalistic coverage of this. It wasn't just the the, the inadequacies in protection and, and liberties and rights for people of color in this country, particularly in cases of police brutality or violence, but also the way that it's covered across the major newspapers and um and it it's it's something that needs to be discussed more there was a great i believe it was new york times piece about a month or two ago essentially saying that when black journalists try to speak from a place of education and fact on these issues they are accused of being biased in their coverage and when white people do so they are they are lauded for covering it objectively but what in fact we're getting is the white experience across the history of our country and now being uh, demonstrated as fact while the black experience is being considered opinion. And until that changes, we will not be able to see the decisions that are made in these cases or otherwise as um, as as what they are, which is unfair and unequal in terms of providing rights to people of color in our country. And the fact that she brought that up, I think, is incredibly important. I also I can speak a little to that, Sarah, because last night, as this all went down, inspired by Malika, frankly, I decided I wanted to get as much education on everything as possible. What was the grand jury presented? Why were they presented the information they were presented? What are the facts as best can be summarized? And one of the more stunning things to me is that, you know, I'm a pretty voracious reader uh, reader in the, the standpoint of trying to gain knowledge right now. One of the more surprising things to me was that it took hours to find enough good information that I felt like was just information. And it surprises me that it's so hard in cases like this that are factual. I mean, there are there are actual they're just simple, basic facts like wanton endangerment, uh, which is what the officer was actually uh, will be charged with or has been charged with. Why? And it took me over an hour just to find the specifics on that information. And that in an Internet age for somebody that is savvy to it was stunning. And it's a reminder how hard it is to get that stuff. Completely agree. By the way, Wesley Lowry is the story in the New York Times from June of this year. The headline is A Reckoning Over Objectivity Led by Black Journalists. I really recommend people read that and understand what it means to be influenced by the people covering these cases and how that influence can feel subconscious in terms of your understanding of of everything that's going on in our country. Um, I do expect tonight, Fitz, that the players, um, there were, of course, Heat players and, and Celtics players last night who had to play through the very recent news. I expect tonight that there will be Lakers and Nuggets players who are carrying the weight of this uh, while also trying to go out there and play. Um, and so, I don't know. I mean, we were gonna we were going to break down what the Lakers need to do to win and whether the Nuggets feel confident, but it feels sort of empty to do so, particularly because one of the promises that we made as media to these players was that we would not let the coverage of the games um, completely whitewash 
uh, I guess that's an appropriate word, uh, the fight that's going on in our country and not let it distract us from still having these conversations. And this perhaps feels more important than uh, whether the Lakers are going to rebound better. And, and A, you're right about that. B, I would ask, do the players not deserve this? Have they not earned this? I mean, right. at some point, the the sacrifices that they've chosen to make, because remember, they chose to play when they could have chosen not to. The sacrifices they've made were made sort of under the pretense of an agreement. Hey, we're going to do this and this is what we want. I think in these moments, we owe it to them. Hey guys, it's the Spain and Fitz podcast. Obviously, we had a great show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. A lot of really good and serious stuff there. Uh, We let Sarah get out of here because I got to get some college football off my chest. And you know, I work a lot in this space. I'm really proud to work a lot in this space. And I needed some room to just stretch and fly on the Pac-12 and ask a real question. The hell are you thinking? What are you doing? I mean, there's this weird, weird debate for the Pac-12 and how you try and figure out relevance and being part of the college football conversation, how you figure out how to move forward as a conference, but then also how you figure out how to be relevant in the moment. I mean, I've asked the tough questions on College Football Live. By the way, you can check out tomorrow's edition. On Friday, I'll be hosting again at 3 o'clock on ESPN2 Eastern Time. And I love asking the analysts and players, hey, what is the Pac-12 going to do to remain relevant if they don't play? What's their thought process? But when you think about everything else that's gone on this year, there's a couple of questions that are going to rise. Why change now? What information have they gotten? What testing is different? How realistic is it that these players are going to have the opportunity to get themselves ready? And not just from a physical standpoint, but also from a competitive standpoint, because you do no good for your conference reputation if you go out and play trash football. That's the other part of it that's lost here. I mean, we've we've watched a little of the ACC, and I thought by the ACC getting a head start, we were going to fall in love with Miami and fall in love with North Carolina. That hasn't happened. Why? Because Miami really isn't as explosive as some are trying to make them sound like they are. North Carolina, while they've had incredible recruiting classes, hasn't taken some transcendent step where we think either of those teams can compete against Clemson. Hell, even Notre Dame has looked slower than we expected in the only matchup they've had that's been anything that we can take anything away from. So now you're looking at it saying, okay, what happens when you get a head start or when you're late to the the party and you might not play great football? I think that's a real scenario. I mean, yes, you want to believe that kids have been keeping themselves ready, but you know, even that is going to be questionable. But then how can they get ready when, as Sarah mentioned in the show, California, Colorado, these are just a couple of the states that have restrictions on allowing kids to practice. So what we're going to get is a Pac-12 product that comes to the pro- to, to the party last. So everybody else is already there. And they're going to come to the party last and likely, in my opinion, look a little sloppy. So they might not have been invited to the party anyway. Now they get there. They look a little sloppy. And everybody's going to look around and say, eh, eh. Is that the reaction you want for your conference? It's sort of a lose-lose situation. And I'll be real. The Pac-12 has an issue we all know about. And I'll break it down in, in the realest way that I know how. The Pac-12 isn't as much of a part of the conversation for college football diehards because realistically, they play their games at night. Now, that might not mean a lot to some people, but it means a lot to casual fans. See, think about it. You get a touchdown in an SEC game at 3 o'clock, what happens? You spend all day watching that replay. You get a touchdown in an ACC noon game, you spend all day watching that holy cow moment, right? All these digital shows that I do, we focus on those plays. Well, we don't get to focus on a lot of Pac-12 because they kick off so late. So by the time you wake up Sunday morning, when you've got great Pac-12 highlights to look at, instead, you're consumed by the NBA. Now, add all of the other sports that are going on, add all of the other chaos that's going on, and ask me how the Pac-12 is going to cut through, especially if their product on the field isn't great. 
It's not just a matter of playing. It's also a matter of playing in a way that represents your product so well that it draws future players to come there. I don't think the Pac-12 can compete for a national championship this year. So now you're looking at it and saying, why are they playing? I don't know the answer to that. There are a lot of kids that want the opportunity to play, and I respect the hell out of that. And if a kid wants to put themselves on the field, I respect the energy and the passion and the fact that they want to be able to go out and play. Frankly, I respect the heck out of the decision because it's beneficial to so many of my close friends. It's beneficial to so many people I know that pay their bills and keep their lights on because they get to work in college football. So there's a huge benefit to it. But when it comes to a health and safety standpoint, is there? I mean, and how are you going to evaluate this season? I'll go too deep in the weeds for so many people, but USC, led by Clay Helton. Since I started covering college football four years ago, the is Clay Helton going to be fired is like an annual talking point, right? So they they weren't sure he was going to stick around. He does stick around. They have a terrible recruiting class. Well, what happens now if they go out, they play a truncated season, and they look bad doing it? I mean, what's the long-term effect of trying to recruit then when you're already losing some of your best athletes to SEC schools and Big 12 schools and Big 10 schools, right? These are all the factors that come into play. The Pac-12 needs to be transparent. And to their credit, they were transparent, more transparent than the Big Ten when they decided not to play. They need to be transparent now, not just on why they are going to play, not just on what the systems for health and safety are going to be, not just on how they're going to make sure that coaching staffs are accountable to keeping kids safe, not just for any of those things, but also how they're going to handle the demands, and I do use the word demands intentionally, that were made by players in the Pac-12 that wanted certain things handled before they were willing to step on the field. They're going to have to be transparent about that. They're also going to be, have to be transparent on how they're getting these kids ready to play, not just from a health standpoint so they don't injure themselves, but also from the incredibly important standpoint of how they can get out and play competitively so they don't hurt themselves on tape and so they don't hurt the reputation of the schools that they get to play for. Nothing is as simple as simply playing a game in college football. Everything's about the today, the tomorrow, the playoff rankings, the future perception of the program, future rankings, uh, future recruiting, future coaching decisions. There are layers to it. I worry that because the Pac-12 didn't decide with everybody else what to do at the same time, that they've already put themselves behind the eight ball. But I worry even more that whatever they do now, if they do it half-ass, will only hurt them even more moving forward. That's a shame for some schools and some kids that are trying to figure out a way to separate in a positive way in 2020. As always, we love hanging out with you. Make sure you tell your friends, family, enemies, everybody that you know to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. And we ask, you know, plainly and simply, share it. Make sure you tell people that we're doing this because we love coming to you every single day. And that can keep happening if we can keep growing the support. As always, we appreciate you guys listening, especially on tough days when there are bigger issues than sports. It means the world that we get to have your ear for a little bit and talk about what we love. Thanks for listening to Spain and Fitz today. Hope you'll do it again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.